Welcome to the author who came to tea. Other beverages are available. Hi, I'm Grace. Hi, I'm Kayla, and we are your hosts. Today we are talking to the amazing author of the Vampire series and the Allies and Assassins series. He is the creator of a creature that is pirate by day and vampire by night. His books have been translated into 25 languages and have been published in 35 countries. Welcome, Justin Sumper. How do you like your tea? <laughs> um, thank you so much for that lovely introduction, um, Kaylin. Um, that was fantastic. Um, I like uh, a nice builder's tea, Yorkshire by preference. Today I'm drinking Yorkshire Gold um, in a very nice mug sent to me by a friend in Melbourne. Nice. <laughs> Milk, no sugar. Sorry, should have said that. How do you like your tea? Maybe you don't like tea. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> What's your drink of choice, Grace? Um, I literally just drink water. Oh, you're living. You're the dream. You're the dream. I've got some water here because I'm trying to up the hydration, but um, I drink too much tea and coffee. How about you, Kaylin? Um, I really like teas. Teas are, I love teas. Um, I've recently got into coffee, but I think tea is probably my favourite drink. Yeah, I think, I think so. So what drew you to um, literature? Well, that's a, that's a big old question to start with, isn't it? Um, I have always loved stories. Um, uh, I've always loved reading them and I've always loved writing them. And I was really fortunate to grow up in a home where there were a lot of books and there was a lot of encouragement to read. Um, but even better, um, there wasn't a sort of snobbery around reading. So, you know, my mum was a voracious reader. She used to get loads of books from the library and kind of burn through them, all kinds of a range of authors. Um, and then she started encouraging me to do so. Um, and so, you know, when I was a kid, um, I read lots of stuff. So, you know, books that stand out, Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, The Secret Garden, Carrie's War by Nina Borden. There was a series, um, The Bagthorpe Saga by Helen Cresswell, which I absolutely adore. And I think more people should read. They're, they're about a really big dysfunctional family that I could thoroughly relate to. Um, and I used to love also the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew adventures. So as I say, hopefully you, you can get the impression that, you know, that there wasn't a snobbery around reading. It was just stories are great. Um, I had a lot of encouragement both at primary school and secondary school with my own writing. Um, I remember, um, I mean, I've got all my school exercise books, so I can see kind of my, my early attempts at stories at primary school. There's one in particular, which is kind of me trying to do Enid Blyton, um, that, that, that's, that's quite fun. Um, but then I suppose I can see when I was in maybe year seven, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say probably year seven, possibly into year eight, that I was starting to fill up almost a whole exercise book with one story. And I remember how that felt. And I think that was really getting my writing stamina going. Uh, and I'm really grateful to this day that, you know, my teachers, rather than rolling their eyes and thinking, oh, my goodness, am I really going to have to read a whole exercise book from this kid? Read it, gave me feedback and were incredibly supportive. So 
Um, all right, that's kind of part one of the answer to your question. That, that's, where, that's where the love of literature started. So you said that like, you'd obviously really gotten into writing in year seven, um, like year eight, that kind of time. Yeah. Um, did you always like at the back of your mind, ha like picture that you'd be an, like an author when you grew up? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I think I think I did um, to a degree. I mean, I think I think when you're young, the great thing is you have lots of ambitions. Um, well, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Well, well, let's talk about yours in a minute. But I think I had several ambitions when I was young. Um, one was to be the Wimbledon champion, and to that end, I kind of drew in chalk on our garage a tennis net and a picture of Bjorn Borg behind it and kind of kept sort of volleying with with the uh, with with the wall but sadly that didn't turn me into a, a tennis champion or even a particularly good tennis player though I, I do still quite enjoy it I also would have really liked to be the fifth member of ABBA I am showing my age a little bit here um, but I'm a child of the 70s so I was I was growing up with ABBA the first time around so that was an ambition, which uh, I haven't yet fulfilled. Um, but I think the other one was to write. And um, I think, the, you know, obviously the exciting thing about that one is it's worked out. I, I have written and um, I suppose, you know, that ties in with a key bit of advice I would have for any young people like yourself who, who might want to be a writer, which is just keep doing it. You know, as long as you keep doing it and you don't give up, you are a writer. And then obviously, you know, there's nice things that happen in terms of being published and, um, you know, your book appearing in print and getting to do events and, and meeting your readers. But fundamentally, if you want to write, there's nothing to stop you just doing it. That's a great piece of advice. <laughs> Whereas becoming the fifth member of ABBA, which I am still <laughs> keen to be, that is a bit tricky. <laughs> Um, so in terms of further education from then, you studied American literature at the University of Warwick. Did you enjoy it and why did you select that selective genre? Oh, Grace, you, you've read my CV very thoroughly. Um, thank you for that question. Um, I did enjoy uh, my English and American literature degree at Warwick uh, very much. Um, and I, I, one of the reasons I enjoyed it is because it's quite um, an experimental um, course in terms of literature. It, it doesn't do the traditional, traditionally people tend to start with Beowulf and then they go to Virginia Woolf and that's kind of how it works. The Warwick, uh, the Warwick syllabus is all split up by genre. So you can study lots of different things at once. So I was studying like in my first year, um, big epic poems, um, like um, the Iliad and the Odyssey um, and uh, the Divine Comedy um, and Paradise Lost on the one hand. And then I was studying Chaucer and Middle English on the other. Um, and then I was studying um, a choice one, which was um, British theatre since uh, the 1950s. I think that was called Anger and After. Um, and then I can't remember what the fourth thing was, Anyway, each year I could do all of this mishmash of stuff. And in my final year, I did a creative writing component as well. 
Um, and in between, I got to discover all these amazing um, American novelists who I really love to this day. Uh, people like um, Edith Wharton and, and Henry James, um, Kate Chopin. So it was a really broad range of stuff. But I don't know, sometimes I've thought, firstly, I was a bit, uh, I was a bit young in a way um, for a degree. Uh, you know, I kind of, I'd love to go back and study again. And I'd kind of love to go back and do another English literature degree. Um, and I'd like to concentrate on all those British Victorian novels that I haven't read um, or other genres. You know, you just, you just can't cover everything. Um, but it was nonetheless, it was a very good starting point for me. I'm guessing if people um, would like to uh, go into like literature, I'm guessing you would like um, advise others to do literary degrees. Um, I think it depends. Um, I think it depends what you want to do. I think I would say if you want to be a writer, um, particularly a writer of, of fiction um, or, or at least a written writer, then I think you need to read. So I don't think you particularly need to do an English degree, but I think you really need to read often. And I think read as widely as possible. So as I say, I was kind of set up really well as a kid because I was allowed to read whatever I fancied. And that exposed me to lots of different kinds of writing voices at the same time. And my parents also took me to the theater and the cinema. And so as I got older, you know, I was introduced to writers uh, like Chekhov, for instance, who I absolutely adore and Tennessee Williams. Um, and in, in some weird ways, both of them kind of uh, come to play in my writing. Um, so you might have noticed, I don't know how much of Vampirates you've read, but I love writing scenes with lots of dialogue um, and I have a lot of characters in my stories. And one of the things I really wanted to do was to make um, it really clear for readers um, which characters were talking within a scene without having to do a lot of he said, she said, any of that stuff, but just to really create a distinctive tone of voice. Um, and I think that very much comes from going to see those kinds of plays. So. No, my only advice if you want to write is to expose yourself to loads of writing. And similarly, if you want to write TV shows, you know, or films, then just you've got to watch lots of TV shows and films, be they the current ones like, you know, Line of Duty, for instance, you know, the really top tier of, of um, uh, contemporary TV, but then also, you know, classic movies as well. So you've got this breadth of experience and references. Um, after university, you spent some time as a publicist, and do you think that helped you in terms of your writing? Um, no. <laughs> well, yes and no. Good question. Um, I think in some ways, it well, for a start, it didn't help me in terms of my... I'd actually written a book before I became a publicist. So my first job after university was writing a book for Usborne Books called The Pyramid Plot number 16 in their, their puzzle adventure series. So I had written a book. Then as you say, um, I became a publicist. I toyed with the idea of becoming a high powered lawyer in between, but I ended up um, at Puffin Books uh, as a junior publicist. And I mean, that was totally amazing because I got to work with so many brilliant writers, including a couple that I've already mentioned. So 
I got to do PR for Helen Cresswell in my first year there, which was a total thrill having read her books since I was about seven years old. Uh, and Nina Borden, who, who, as I say, wrote Carrie's War. Um, I worked with Philip Pullman. I worked with Anne Fine and Jacqueline Wilson um, and Alan Arberg and Janet Arberg and all kinds of amazing authors, you know, really the, the top tier children's authors in the UK, if not the world. So on the one hand, that was not good for my writing because I was, you know, surrounded by such talented people. I kind of had that sense of what's the point in me doing this because everything's been done and these people are so much better than I am. But on the other hand, um, they were super encouraging to me. So people like Anne Fine would be encouraging me to do my own writing. I remember her kind of drawing a little diagram for me of, you know, just sort of building up the chapters and the time you invest in a story bit by bit being, being very encouraging. Later, I worked with Anthony Horowitz, who has been a, an amazing support to me um, with Vampirates and, and my writing career in, in general. Um, the Australian author, Paul Jennings, also gave me some really good advice. So I think, um, you know, it, it was a mixed bag, um, but it took me a while to get back to my writing, partly because being a publicist and going to events and around the country with those authors was uh, quite all-consuming. I guess we'll move on to um, the uh, Vampire series. So sure. was there like one thing or one moment that you remember that gave you the first idea for the Vampirates books? Totally, totally. And because I'm a publicist and, and also work in marketing and branding and stuff, people sometimes think completely the wrong thing. They think that I had this sort of marketing whiz idea that I would take two genres that were kind of really hot and powerful, pirates and vampires, and I'd merge them together, you know, with this sort of marketing brain. That's not how it happened at all. Um, the way it happened is I, I live in a part of London called Crouch End in North London. I've lived here for many years and I was literally just wandering around the streets here, I think not far from our local library, Hornsey Library. And I had this sudden light bulb moment. It was literally like the idea had fallen out of the sky into my head and I heard the word vampirates just kind of snap into my head. And the minute it did, I thought, wow, that's it. That's the idea I've been waiting for. Um, you know, at that point, I was working on a story about a cat with a stumpy tail that lived in a bookshop, which nobody was very excited about, though, you know, I still think it's got potential. But when I heard the word vampire, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is the idea I've been waiting for as a writer for years. Um, so, you know, very exciting, shivers up the back of my neck. What am I going to do about it? And what am I going to do about it? Because actually, I'm not very into vampire books, TV series or movies. And if I know very little about vampires, I know absolutely nothing about pirates. So how am I, how am I going to do this? But that's where the whole thing started. And um, the fact that vampirates sounds immediately, you know, you know what it is. 
you come to it with expectations and it feels like a word that sits in the dictionary already. It feels really concrete. So I guess my mission from that point on was how can I make the story and the world of this feel as concrete to the readers as, as that word does? And how can I meet their expectations? Um, you mentioned libraries in your previous answer. And I was just wondering with lockdown, um, how do you think libraries are really important to how children's relationships with books kind of form? Because I personally think they are, but obviously because of lockdown, they're kind of struggling right now. Um, I think that's a terrific question, Grace, and I'm delighted to hear that you think they are important. I'd go even further. I think they're vital. Um, I think public libraries are vital and need more funding and more support. And we have to be really alert to them disappearing. I think school libraries are absolutely vital and school librarians are absolutely vital. A school librarian is often the person in school who will introduce you to your next book, I think, and will have a sense of you've read this book, so you might like this one in a way that you might not have made that connection yourself. And certainly if you were buying the book online, say, and an algorithm threw up a book, it wouldn't be as clever a suggestion as the one I would say your school librarian would make. So, I mean, obviously, as you say, libraries have had to close during the past year. Schools have closed, so school libraries have had to close. But, um, you know, now that we are going back into some form of new normality or the new normal, um, I think we've really got to support libraries. And, you know, those of us, like I say, I'm thrilled at what you said, and I'm a lot older than you, and I feel exactly the same. And I think we've got to really support our libraries, fight for the libraries, because, you know, they're an amazing place to develop the reading habit. And I go back to what I was saying before, you know, if you, if you love books and you love writing, reading stories, being exposed to a wide range of authors is what you need. And I think the brilliant thing about a library is that, you know, I think of my mum taking me into Hatfield Library when I was a kid and, you know, coming out with six books. It didn't matter if I didn't like three of them, um, you know, because, you know, we hadn't paid a fortune for them. We hadn't paid anything for them because they were library books. But, you know, there might be there might have been one of those that I absolutely adored. And then we can go off and, and try more. But it's 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 a brilliant way. And, you know, plenty of families can't afford to buy lots of books, if any books. So it's absolutely vital that the libraries remain open and vibrant. Mm. I totally agree. Uh I have such like vivid memories of me and my mum going to the library for like different book events or just to like browse the shelves and sit down and read together. It's yeah. Well, as you say, Caitlin, you know, that that's a whole other aspect that libraries are a real hub within the community and um, have increasingly become so. Um, and so, you know, I would imagine that, you know, during lockdown as, as well, the, the communities where libraries really have become a hub of events of one kind and another have felt even more disenfranchised by that not being there. But let's hope we can we can get all that back up and running in a safe way. Um, I also have quite vivid memories of libraries because I was a school librarian because in my school they did this system where um, you'd get chosen and there were six librarians who worked underneath 
the main one. Yeah. And there, we put on all these shows, and it was just a really vivid kind of memory of my school experience. And, yeah, it means a lot to me. Terrific. Well, I didn't realise I was speaking to a librarian. This is even more special. <laughs> you guys keep surprising me. I don't know what's coming out next, but I'm excited. Do you think that younger children, so like toddlers, let's say, um, should be just introduced to picture books? Or do you think they should uh, be able to like go to the library and choose like a proper chapter book? Um, well, I think... I think, you know, you want a book that's going to be perhaps slightly on the challenging side for a young reader, but within their grasp. But I would imagine for most toddlers, that isn't a chapter book. It probably is a picture book. Um, but I think I'd like to flip your question because I'm a big fan of picture books. And I think that there are plenty of amazing picture books which are suitable for older readers um, or indeed adults and I think in this country where we're a little bit snobby about writing over pictures in a way that many other countries aren't so for instance in France as you probably know they have a really strong tradition of bon dessinée or graphic novels which essentially are picture books for, for adults um, and there's some wonderful authors um, you know I think of Chris Van Arsberg or Sean Tan um, you know who write totally amazing um, books which, which for all age groups. But I, I mean, in many ways, I think that's true of most picture book authors. So I think I would say in answer to your question, probably not chapter books for the average toddler, um, but I think picture books for all of us. I was just wondering, how did you come up with the names for your characters? Because some of them are quite unique. <laughs> Do you have any favorites amongst the unique ones? Um, I'm kind of curious about the name Diablo. Okay, so the Diablo is um, is the name of a ship. Um, it's the it's the name of a pirate ship, and I guess um, as I've often said, you know, pirate ships tend to have quite ferocious names that signal intent. So the Diablo, meaning devil in Spanish, felt like quite a uh, a good a good name on that score. And I think the fact it's Spanish also plays into the Spanish traditions of piracy. Um, the captain of the Diablo is a captain called Malaco Wraith, um, and he has two brothers, Barbaro and Porfirio. So they have quite unusual names. And I would say with all, all those names, whether it's Wraith or Malaco or Barbaro, it's really about the sound of the name. So Malaco is in a way my Blackbeard character. He's He's kind of a, a cross between an archetypal pirate and a rock and roll star. And so it, he needed a big swag kind of rock and roll kind of name. And, and that's where that came from. Um, and as I say, he's part of this sort of pirating dynasty. The deputy captain of that ship is Wu Cheng Li. She's a much more strategic, serious, younger pirate. She's only... Um, I think 17 years old when we first meet her and she's just graduated from Pirate Academy. And her name somewhat pays tribute to um, a young, vicious Chinese pirate I found whilst researching called Cheng Yi Sao. Um, in the first book, we've, you, you may have come across Sidorio, 
um, the renegade vampirate. Now, when I was researching um, pirates, because as I said before, I didn't know anything about pirates really before I had this idea. So I got a pirate encyclopedia, which I'm looking at uh, on my bookshelf over there because I, I keep it close at all times. And one of the most exciting things I found quite quickly was that Julius Caesar had been kidnapped by pirates um, when he was a young man and that these pirates came from um, a stronghold within the Mediterranean called Cilicia, which is now part of Turkey. And that was enough for me to kind of get the character of Sidorio from. And in terms of his name, there was a pirate called Isidorus um, from that group. So you can see I've kind of taken Isidorus and sort of done a countdown conundrum on, on the name and lost a letter or two and brought one back. But that's kind of how I got to that one. Um, Lorcan Fury, uh, one of my favorite characters who we talked about briefly at the beginning. Um, I mean, I love the name Lorcan. Um, you know, it's a lovely, I think it's a lovely Gaelic name. I, I hope you would agree with me. And Fury, he's called Fury because one of my favorite pieces of writing is the short story, The Dead by James Joyce. And there's a character in that story called Michael Fury. And so Lorcan's, he slightly plays homage to Michael Fury in the same way that Lady Lola Lockwood, also known as Blackheart, um, who comes into the story a bit later, um, she's called Lockwood because there are kind of two inspirations for her character. One of them um, is a character in a Daphne du Maurier novel called Frenchman's Creek. But the other one is a movie called The Wicked Lady, which starred the British actress Margaret Lockwood. So Lady Lola Lockwood, it's a little nod to that. Um, in fact, her full name is Lady Lola Elizabeth Mercy Lockwood, though Mercy's a bit of a red herring because she doesn't have a lot of that uh, as a quality. So I do, you're right, um, Grace, I, I absolutely love um, naming characters and they have to have the right name. For me, I mentioned earlier about the way characters speak. If I, if I can give a character a good name and really have a sense of what their voice is like, I feel I've kind of nailed that character. You talked about like your research about um, pirates and vampires. Um, how long would you say your research time was for that? Or was it like, well, the or was it like constant? Sorry, I, con constant. Um, what if, yeah, sorry, I, I cut you off a little bit there, but I, I get what you're asking. Um, it sort of came in two parts. So the first bit of research was after I'd had the initial idea and I was putting the idea together and putting ultimately the pitch together to publishers. So that was kind of getting to the point of having eight chapters and a synopsis or summary of the first book and, and some summaries of, of where it might go after that. And I, I think looking back, that took about four years, maybe five years even from having that eureka moment of, whoa, vampirates to actually pulling the whole thing together, researching pirate history, researching vampire myth, looking at connections, making a conscious decision not to read lots of other vampire books or watch vampire TV shows, which I could have done. Um, so that was kind of phase one. And then the other bit of research was just the whole time I was writing the books, I was researching. 
Um, so there would always be something that I'd need to know, which I think is probably true for most writers. Um, and I wonder if it's also more true for fantasy writers, because, because we're trying to create a world that isn't the real world, but we want it to feel really real to the readers and really concrete. There's often bits of it that you feel like, you know, I just, I just need to make this work. So I need to go over here and, and fix this. Um, how did you feel when you actually concluded the Vampire series? Because you've created a universe and once you've kind of finished it, there's no way to go back and expand it. Well, I beg to differ, Grace. Um, I mean, I'm loving these questions. Um, I'm going to answer that. I'm going to answer your question in two parts, if I may. So coming to the end of the sixth book, Immortal War, uh, was really emotional for me. Um, and I think about, you know, J.K. Rowling and when she talked about the Harry Potter books and how she knew going into them how many there were going to be and she knew pretty much the arc of the story she was going to tell. I went into this story not knowing how many there were going to be. Um, and I had a broad sense of the story, but a lot of it developed as I did it. And some of the, you know, some of the ideas I'd originally had did happen, but they didn't happen at the points that they happened. And then other things grew. And I would never compare myself to Dickens and that's not what I'm doing. But because I was writing the books as people were reading them, which Dickens did as well, um, what I was able to do is respond to what readers were asking about characters. So for instance, readers got very interested in Grace and Connor's mother and the story about her and her relationship with, with their father. And that wasn't particularly something that was gonna become a big part of these books, but because there was more and more of this swell of interest in that, I was able to say, okay, in Blackheart, we're gonna dive deep into that story because that's what the readers want to know. And there's this love, I mean, there's a gorgeous relationship between writer and reader anyway, but when the readers are actually asking you for something, that takes it to a whole new level. Anyway, by the time I got to the end of the sixth book, I guess I just felt this enormous responsibility because I hadn't planned it out in intricate detail to bring all the characters to a good ending. And in, that doesn't necessarily mean they all come home safe because some of them have uh, sort of elegant deaths, if you like, or, you know, epic deaths. So they don't all come home safe, but I want, it was very important to me that every one of my beloved characters kind of came to an okay end. Um, but if you read the sixth book, um, Immortal War, um, there are some strands that were intentionally left hanging at the end of that book. So it doesn't all wrap up neatly. Um, and I wanted the conclusion to be satisfying for readers who'd set out on this epic journey with me. But I also did want to leave a couple of threads hanging for two reasons. One, I thought, as you say, I've worked very hard to kind of create this universe um, for readers. And part of me making it feel real is I want it to feel like it's still going on. It still exists and the characters are still there, whether there are new books or there aren't. That's how I wanted it to stay in my head and the readers. And the other thing was, although I needed to stop writing Vampires at that point, because I needed a bit of a break, 
I thought, you know, there might be a point where I do want to come back and, and tell new stories with these characters. And one of the lovely things about these new editions, which I have close here, is that I've written this bonus story for each of them. So I've, I've, I've got this, into, this crossing stories interview that my character Grace does uh, with, with some of the main characters within the story. So, you know, having these new editions of the books enabled me to do some fresh writing within the Vampirates universe. Um, and now uh, that I've done that and, and that went well and people are responding very nicely to it, um, I would certainly be amenable to writing a whole new Vampirates adventure um, or two or three. Um, whose idea was it to, like create these new editions of the books? It was mine, um, actually. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, and I mean, to cut a long story short, you know, the books had first been published, um, let's say before you were born. Um, well, it's true, isn't it? they, they were published first, the first one was published in 2005. So it was before you were born. And you know, you, you talked very kindly in the introduction about 25 languages, 35 countries. Um, and, you know, they, they did really, really well. And it was very exciting. Um, and I did two tours in America and events in Australia and France and Sweden and all over the UK and Ireland. Um, but I suppose at some point uh, after I'd finished writing the books, I was, I was going into schools because I love going into schools and introducing the books to the next year sixes, sevens, maybe year fives. Um, and I found that, you know, every year that I went in, um, I got the same response, essentially. People were really excited about the idea. Pirates, vampires liked the characters. But because the books hadn't had fresh jackets for quite some time, they were just looking a bit tired and, to be honest, a bit naff compared to you know, some of the other cooler stuff that was out there. And it became very frustrating to me um, doing that. And I, I just I just wanted the books to look better and fresher. Um, and, you know, this is not uncommon. It's, um, and I'm certainly not kind of casting aspersions at, at my first publisher. I think it's very difficult for publishers to show ongoing love to one author or one series when there are a lot of new things coming through. But but I guess, you know, there's also a bit of a trend that I don't like now, uh, which is that, you know, some authors or series become a bit disposable and people move on to the next thing. And as an, as an author, you have to fight for your work and for your career. And I, I really believe in these books. I don't think, you know, these books were a good book to be published in 2005, but not a good book to be published in 2021. I think, you know, I'm very proud of these books they come from my heart um, and, you know, all the feedback I'm getting, particularly now they've been relaunched from people who come into them the first time, I feel very vindicated by that. So again, to, to, to speed this answer up for you, Kaylin, um, I took the decision to take back the rights to the books and take them out of print myself which some people said to me was a slightly suicidal thing to do as an author, but there we go, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And I went to look for a new publisher uh, and I found a really exciting new publisher in UCLan, which is this independent kind of maverick publisher based at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston. And they've been brilliant to work with, really collaborative. 
I've ended up with, with books that have got the best book jackets of any that I've ever had anywhere in the world. So I'm thrilled about that. Um, they've all, they've got loads of uh, character art in them and the characters look more like the characters than any other depictions of them I've ever had. And they were just, as a publisher, just super responsive. So I said, what about having a cross section of some of the ships inside because the ships are kind of like extra characters within the story. And rather than saying, oh, we don't have enough budget for that, no, which a lot of publishers would have said, they said, yeah, we're crossing stories for them. So um, yes, so it's down to me that there are these new editions. Um, go me. Um, but I couldn't have done it without my amazing new publisher. Would you like to move on to the one minute challenge? Okay, I'm up for it. Um the one minute challenge is uh you basically just have to answer as many questions as you can in one minute and we are in the process of making a little leaderboard um, i've got you yeah um is it now and this is general knowledge or preference um preference excellent okay good yeah um so grace do you have a timer yes great so Three, two, one. What book most influenced or inspired you as a child? The Outsiders by Essie Hinton. What is your favourite word? Mm, Susurrus. How do you like your tea? Milky, no sugar. If you were Wes Woolley, where would you hide? Under my desk. Pencil or pen? Mm, pen. What is your favourite children's book now? Um, In total... Um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Paper or computer? Computer. Mystery or horror? Mystery. Famous Five or Secret Seven? Secret Seven. Cake or biscuits? Biscuits. Blog or diary? Mm, diary. Who is your favourite author? Uh, Tim Winton. Illustrator? Ooh, um, Lauren Child. Poet. Oh, I didn't get to my poet. <laughs> that was like really good. You nearly got like, everyone gets stuck on poet, but like you got like nearly all the way to the end. Oh, well, I didn't have much time on poet, did I? And you know, I would have, I would have ruminated, so it wouldn't have been good. It's, um, it's difficult. I, I think I. Th I think it's easier. The questions that are easier are like cake or biscuits. Not not because it's about cake or biscuits, but if you said Shakespeare or T.S. Eliot, I would have found it easier. But that's not a complaint. That's just explanation. <laughs> but thank you. I, I'm glad to have been able to say The Outsiders because actually that is properly... Um, a book that's really influenced me so it's really nice to be able to mention that thank you due to lockdown it must have been hard to find events that you could go to and to publicize your books um have you got any upcoming uh uh you're well you're first you're totally right it's been very frustrating not being able to get out and about um obviously I've been able to do some stuff on Zoom, but even, you know, even that, um, you know, with people being in and out of school and stuff has been a bit stop start. 
But I'm so glad you asked me that question. In August, I'm doing an event at Jackson Diego Bookshop. So thoroughly looking forward to that and looking forward to talking to lots more young people like your good selves. Thank you very much, Justin, for speaking with us. It was great to have your opinions on different things. Oh, I'm very grateful for your interest and for your brilliant questions. And I enjoyed, you have a very complimentary um, uh, questioning style, and which I enjoyed very much. So thank you both. Thank you too. <laughs> Thank you to our guests today and our listeners at home for joining us for tea. Until next time. <laughs>